His journey had been nothing short of remarkable. From an orphan from Western Virginia to matriculation to West Point, where there along the banks of the Hudson, he had been an immortal, placed in the weakest academic section. And yet he worked, he willed himself to graduate 17th out of 59 in the talented class of 1846, a class that produced 20 generals. From there, he found confidence and promotion in Mexico, but thanks to a contentious relationship with a post commander in Tampa, he resigned his military commission as an officer and accepted an opportunity to teach at VMI. Eccentric and demanding, his single-mindedness made him an unpopular professor. However, that same trait propelled him to successful command in the coming Civil War. At Manassas, his brigade helped to turn the tide of battle and earned him a nickname, perhaps the most famous in American military history. But his eccentric behavior and aggressiveness concerned some in Richmond. Not enough, however, to keep him from independent command when the Confederate capital was threatened in the spring of 1862. It was then all those traits, single-mindedness, aggressiveness, a propensity for secrecy, they all came together and he successfully designed and carried out one of the most masterful campaigns in military history. By late spring, his Shenandoah Valley campaign Despite his oddities, his demand for discipline and dour personality elevated him to such stature that he may well have been the most well-known Confederate general, and for the North, the most feared. Indeed, his journey thus far had been quite amazing. And now, we continue the story of the man known simply as Stonewall. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. After Jackson's remarkable and exhausting Shenandoah campaign, word came from Richmond that he and his men were needed in a new quarter. Robert E. Lee, commander of the Army of Northern Virginia, wanted Jackson's army of 18,500 to march east 52 miles and be in position to attack a day after Lee launched his seven days campaign a campaign to drive Union Major General George B. McClellan's massive Army of the Potomac away from Richmond, a force that was only some seven miles east of the Confederate capital. Lee wanted Jackson on McClellan's right flank by July 26th and ready to strike at 3.30 p.m. It was a tall order for Jackson and his men, who were beyond exhaustion. To personally meet with Lee, Jackson had ridden 80 miles and had gone two nights without sleep. In fact, by the date Lee wanted Stonewall in place, the 26th, Jackson had had only eight hours of sleep in three and a half days. Those factors, 
Jackson and his men's fatigue, combined with poor work by Lee's military staff, meant that though Jackson had been brilliant in the valley, his performance in the Seven Days campaign was just the opposite. At Mechanicsville on July 26th, he totally missed the fight. At Gaines Mill on the 27th, the enemy was not where Lee thought and Jackson's men were late. At Savage's Station, or White Oak Swamp, on the 29th, orders came for him to rebuild a bridge and fall upon McClellan's retreat from Richmond. Again, Jackson was a no-show. In fact, he was found asleep under a large oak and later that same day fell asleep while he was eating with a biscuit between his teeth. Little wonder, for since April his men had not been in the same camp over four days. Some Confederate colleagues were quite critical of his horrific performance east of Richmond. One in particular was A.P. Hill, who thought Jackson had been criminally negligent. Ironic, then, when Hill and his division were reassigned to Jackson's command. Between the two, there was great friction. As to Jackson's effort in the seven days, Lee, in his official report, chose not to criticize or commend. Quite honestly, there were more pressing matters. Alarmed by McClellan's inflated numbers of Lee's army, Washington City created another federal army in central Virginia and gave its command to bombastic Major General John Pope. Lee, who wanted to seize the initiative in Virginia, decided to strike Pope's isolated army before McClellan's host could merge with it. Speed was required, and Lee opted to use arrested Jackson and his vaunted foot cavalry. So began, for the next ten months, one of military history's greatest partnerships, though just beneath the surface there was tension. A.P. Hill often clashed with Jackson, and another officer under Lee, James Longstreet, felt a degree of jealousy over Lee's willingness to give Jackson independent command. However, all that was pushed to the back burner when Jackson's isolated force encountered the enemy at Cedar Mountain in northern central Virginia. It came August the 9th, 1862, and just after a 96-degree marching day. On the day of battle, temperatures reached 98 degrees. That established Cedar Mountain, the hottest of all battles fought in Virginia during the war. Though it was against Nathaniel Banks, a Union political general, to be quite honest, Jackson was sloppy with his communication. His piecemeal introduction of units into the fight and his general lack of overall control got him into serious trouble. At one point, his original brigade, now officially christened the Stonewall Brigade, broke before a federal attack, and Jackson, attempting to rally his men, tried to draw his rarely used sword from its scabbard. It was so rusted, he could not, and so he rode into the midst of the fight, extending his sword, scabbard, and all. On this blistering hot day, the divisions of Jubal Early and, interestingly, A.P. Hill saved the day. Though Hill's light division was truly heroic, the tension remained so great between the two that Hill received little notice or credit in Jackson's official report. 
At Battle's End, Lee ordered Jackson to move around Pope's right. His foot cavalry responded. They marched 56 miles in two days. And on August the 26th, descended upon Pope's lightly guarded supply trains at Manassas Junction. After the destruction and plundering of federal supplies, Jackson's main body settled into an unfinished railroad cut on the old Manassas battlefield of just over a year ago. Late in the day of August the 28th, Jackson watched a federal column march directly across his front. Unaware of Jackson's presence, it was a part of Pope's force, one that had been trying to locate the fast-moving Jackson. Instead, Jackson found them. But this time, his aggressiveness cost him. Known as the Battle of Brawner's Farm or Groveton, it proved to be the opening of the Battle of Second Manassas. And here at Brawner's Farm, Jackson's planning quite honestly was ill-conceived and his attack ill-managed. No question, the fight alerted Pope's army to Jackson's isolated position. The day was a bloody affair. 1,100 of 2,800 Federals engaged were casualties and 1,200 of 4,500 Confederates. Aware of Jackson's position, Pope concentrated his army, and the next day, Jackson, all alone, had to withstand the onslaught of Pope's United Federal Army of Virginia. For the next 36 hours, Stonewall and his men, numbering around 17,000, endured the constant hammering of Pope's army, which numbered some 70,000. And that prolonged situation bore serious consequences. By the 30th of August, some of Jackson's men were out of ammunition and resorted to beating back Union attacks with the throwing of rocks. With some difficulty and great effort, Lee and Longstreet finally arrived on the battlefield, the Army of Northern Virginia reunited. Actually, they had arrived 10.30 in the morning on the 29th while Jackson was taking the brunt of Pope's punishment. However, on the 30th, with Pope renewing his attacks on Jackson's position, Lee unleashed Longstreet's 28,000 men, and Jackson's force joined them in the largest simultaneous counterattack of the war. It came at about 4 p.m. on an unsuspecting John Pope and brought Confederate victory. However, that victory was not complete, for although Jackson's men moved forward, it took too long to get their understandably exhausted broken units together to make the full-blown counterattack one of true coordination. After Pope's retreat toward Washington City, Lee decided to push his initiative. He ordered what he had been hoping to do for the past 17 months. On September the 4th, 1862, his men splashed across the Potomac River, and so began Lee's first invasion of the North. And yet, it had an inauspicious beginning. Lee had been thrown by his horse, Traveler, and crossed into Maryland in an ambulance. Longstreet had developed a blister and wore a carpet slipper. And Jackson, too, entered Maryland, battered and bruised after being dragged to the ground by a skittish horse. Egos were bruised as well. The friction between A.P. Hill and Jackson flared once again. Just before the river's crossing, the two had an ugly exchange about marching orders. And when an offended Hill offered his sword in resignation, 
Jackson arrested him. The bad vibes continued when Lee's marching orders for the campaign wound up in Union Major General George McClellan's hands. Lee, ready to call off the invasion, hooked its continuance on the capture of federally held Harper's Ferry. The task required quick marching, and Jackson was given the assignment. Though Longstreet thought the mission risky, Lee sent 26 of his 40 brigades with a three-day timetable. Capture Harper's Ferry, or all were turned southward. Equal to the challenge, some of Jackson's men marched 73 miles in two days, and incredibly, around 8 a.m. on Monday, September the 15th, the Union garrison at Harper's Ferry fell. 12,500 men surrendered along with 73 guns, and it was done at a Confederate cost of only 39 killed and 247 wounded. The speed and execution were such that as federal POWs were lined up, they spotted Jackson and raised a cheer for him. With the garrison's fall, Lee decided to make a stand some 17 miles away at the little Maryland town known as Sharpsburg. To reach Lee, Jackson again asked the impossible of his men. Just before midnight of the 15th, he led his corps out of Harper's Ferry, though many of them had had no sleep for the last two nights. Their 17-mile journey, which included crossing the Potomac, took all night and was severe even by Jackson's standards. By late morning of the 16th, the head of Jackson's columns entered the little farming village of Sharpsburg. It's some 1,500 citizens were soon to witness the bloodiest single day in American history. Jackson's position this day was on Lee's left. The famous and bloody landmarks within his lines were the Dunker Church, the Hagerstown Pike, and the Smoketown Road. At 6 a.m. on Wednesday, September the 17th, it was Jackson's position that McClellan and his some 87,000 men struck first, and the bloodletting was, as Bruce Catton described, sheer, unadulterated violence. That was particularly evident in a 30-acre cornfield where units were ground into pieces. One of Jackson's divisions, the one under Kentuckian John Bell Hood, lost 1,000 of the 2,300 who drove into Miller's cornfield. One of Hood's regiments, the 1st Texas, lost four of every five men, the highest Confederate regimental loss of the entire war. Never had Jackson been attacked so violently and for so long. His men stopped and battered two attacks by a Union Corps and the division of another. After four to five hours of constant fighting and with no available reserves, the attacks in Jackson's sector providentially ended. It was he who said, God has been very kind to us today. And yet, Alexander Gardner's photographs bear testament to the slaughter of Jackson's men that morning. He lost 40% of his command, and yet, incredibly, around noon, wanted to launch a counterattack. Lee and Longstreet, like Jackson, held on that day despite over 10,000 total casualties. For Jackson, it was the toughest day of battle he had ever experienced. His indomitable will had been unbelievable. 
As to the battle itself, Sharpsburg or Antietam was a tactical draw, but with Lee's retreat the next night, a Confederate strategic reversal. Safely back in Virginia, an incident worth noting. It was November the 1st, 1862, and Jackson was in Winchester, Virginia. While there and visiting with friends, the 24-year-old sister of his surgeon, Hunter McGuire, asked if he would grant a favor. Nodding he would, if possible, she, although knowing his aversion to such, wanted a photograph. Amazingly, that very day, Jackson dropped by a photographic studio on Loudon Street. The astonished photographer, a native of Maryland, was only too glad to accommodate. Jackson sat down, and the photographer noticed a missing button. Somewhat impatiently, Jackson said, Yes, yes, I know it. I have it here in my pocket. If you can find a needle and thread, I will sew it on. With materials in hand, Jackson laid the coat across his knees and with great attention sewed it on. Shown here on this website's page, it is the first of only two wartime photographs ever taken of Stonewall Jackson. The photographer noted, He who could find Union General Banks and smash him at will was worsted by a brass button, for he sewed it well out of line. Meanwhile, both armies recovered from the bloodletting back in September along Antietam Creek, and for the Union Army of the Potomac, there was a change in command. Major General Ambrose Burnside took rein and formulated a new campaign on Richmond. A crucial objective in that plan would be the occupation of a Virginia town that sat on the banks of the Rappahannock River, Fredericksburg. On November the 29th, 1862, Lee and his newly designated Corps commanders Longstreet and Jackson made ready to respond. It was about this time that one of the few men who could rib, tease, and actually get Jackson to laugh, Jeb Stewart, presented the second Corps commander with a brand new coat and cap. And there was more good news. On November the 28th, a note arrived that five days earlier, down in Charlotte, North Carolina, a baby girl was born to he and his wife, Anna. They named her Julia. For a man who had lost two children and a wife, the event was truly cherished. December, however, returned the reality of war. Burnside crossed the river and attacked Lee's army on the 13th. This time, Jackson's corps was on Lee's right. As to the battle's outcome, Jackson had no doubt that it would be a Confederate victory, but he did not welcome the fight. In fact, he went on record. I am opposed to fighting here. We will whip the enemy but gain no fruits of victory. Events would prove him right. However, in the fight that came, there were some anxious moments. In the late morning of the 13th, Major General George Meade's Union assault penetrated Jackson's line, and there was great concern until Jubal Early's division drove the Federals back with great loss. With Jackson's front secure, the Federal disaster that was Fredericksburg rolled to the north at Marie's Heights. Indeed, the battle was a Confederate victory, but Jackson's earlier assessment was correct. Lee could do little to follow up his defensive win. 
Jackson by now had been in 14 engagements over the last nine months, and I truly believe it weighed on him. That is evidenced when about this time he addressed his surgeon, Dr. Hunter McGuire. Jackson looked up to the sky and commented, How horrible is war? His surgeon answered, Horrible, yes, but we have been invaded. What can we do? Jackson's lament now turned savage. He said, Kill them, sir. Kill every man. For the plight of ravaged Fredericksburg, the warrior showed compassion when his corps raised over $30,000 for the citizens of the city. As 1862 ended, Thomas Jonathan Stonewall Jackson was arguably the most famous field commander in the world, but one might never guess that at Moss Neck, just south of Fredericksburg, where he made winter quarters. It was there on the 20th of January he turned 39 years of age. If one dropped by to visit, he would quite often say, let me take your hat. And then as he and his guests turned to be seated, Jackson would drop the hat on the floor. On rare occasion, the dour man could be a playful host. Once Jackson asked for a bottle of wine and invited his entire staff to taste it and tell from what European country it originated. Italy and France were suggested, and conversation as to where it was made went on and on until the staff watched Jackson smother his face in a pillow trying to muffle his laughter. He announced the wine was from Virginia. Reports, promotions court-martials, the ever-present drama of personal rivalries consumed his winter. But on Monday, April the 20th, a true blessing. His wife, Anna, and five-month-old Julia arrived in camp. He was truly happy. Three days later, she was baptized Julia Laura in honor of Jackson's mother and his sister. The proud parents spent nine wonderful days together, then came crisis, this time from yet another commander of the Federal Army of the Potomac, Joseph Hooker, who indeed succeeded in a surprise march which turned Lee's left flank. The move meant that of Hooker's over 120,000, almost 40,000 were some 10 miles behind Lee's fortified lines at Fredericksburg. Sending Anna and Julia to Richmond, Jackson, on Lee's orders, moved west with his entire corps, save Jubal Early's division, which would confront Hooker's remaining force still east of Fredericksburg. Now divided in the face of superior numbers, four-fifths of Lee's army headed west for a 70-mile section known as the Wilderness. Six miles wide, 12 miles long, its wooded maze aided an outnumbered army, and Lee indeed was outnumbered two to one. Near sunset on May the 1st, 1863, one and a quarter miles east of Chancellorsville, near the intersection of the Plank and Catherine Furnace Roads, an urgent meeting of great importance took place. There, Lee and his trusted Lieutenant Stonewall Jackson set themselves down on a fallen log in a little clearing in the woods and discussed what they should do. At this point, it was Hooker who dictated action. But incredibly, that same day, Hooker pulled his army back into the dense cover of the wilderness. 
And by doing so, he surrendered initiative to a man who needed no second invitation. Robert E. Lee had an opportunity. Jeb Stewart informed him in Jackson that five miles west of Chancellorsville, Hooker's right was in air, its flank without protection. Lee proposed a movement to get at that unsupported Union flank and rear, and that was all Jackson needed to hear. He needed a route, however, and Jackson's chaplain general, Beverly Tucker Lacey, he had an answer. Previously, Lacey had had a church in the area and therefore knew the roads. With his help, mapmaker Jedediah Hotchkiss and a local, Charles C. Welford, a route was found that would allow Confederate infantry to move across the front of the Union line without detection. With route selected and meeting with Lee at its end, Jackson rose and simply said, My troops will move at 4 o'clock. The rest of the evening passed, and then before dawn, Saturday, the 2nd, Lee and Jackson met again. It was about 3.30 a.m., and the two seated on empty cracker boxes. The route of the flank march was again discussed. Drawing the conference to a close, Lee asked of his lieutenant, Well, General Jackson, what do you propose to do? Jackson answered, I propose to go right around there. Lee then asked, What do you propose to do it with? Jackson answered, With my whole command. Lee then queried, What will you leave me here to hold the Federal Army with? And without hesitation, Jackson said, The two divisions that you have here. There was a pause And Lee then said, well, go ahead. It was one of, if not the greatest, gambles of the war for Jackson's flank march would mean. Yet another violation of a cardinal rule in war, the dividing of one's force in the face of superior numbers. And this was Lee's second division. Jackson's flanking march meant that while he and some 28,000 made their way to the Union unguarded right, Robert E. Lee would face some 72,300 enemy troops and 184 guns, and he had 14,924 guns. The two met once more a little later that morning. At the start of the flank march, Lee stood quietly by the roadside. He and Jackson spoke briefly. No one knows what was said. And it would be the last time they would ever speak to one another. Jackson's flank route was about 10 to 12 miles in length. With pioneers out in front, the march began around 7.30 a.m., four abreast and moving along at two miles per hour. Around 3 p.m., Jackson began to align his attack with those that had arrived, and that task took the rest of his afternoon. Shortly before five, many of Jackson's officers gathered round him. Gathered, familiar faces from VMI stared back at him. Filled with emotion, Jackson said, Gentlemen, the Institute will be heard from today. Their assignment? Three lines of infantry separated by some 200 yards. 21,500 men of his 28,000 would be used in the attack and eight guns. They faced east. 
toward the exposed right flank in the rear of the Army of the Potomac. It was about 5.45 p.m. on Saturday, May the 2nd. The sun was low in the western sky. A half mile away, just under 11,000 men of the 11th Corps in the Union Army of the Potomac cooked, played cards, and whiled away the hours. Then suddenly, there was a commotion. Quail, frantic deer, rabbits all raced toward and through their encampment. They thought it amusing. Then came the thunderclap and lightning bolt from a clear sky. Jackson's men were upon them. The horror and surprise made worse by the wild, blood-curdling screams of the rebel yell. Whole units in blue went to pieces. For the next one and one-half hours, Jackson's men drove the entire 11th Corps some one and a half miles to the east. Hearing Jackson's guns, Lee, 10 to 12 miles away, passed orders along his entire line to press them heavily everywhere. For Stonewall Jackson, it was unquestionably his finest tactical hour, and he wanted more. He wanted his men to continue the attack into the night, cut the Federals off from United States Ford and safety north of the Rappahannock River. Under a full moon, he moved eastward with his staff along the Plank Road to personally conduct reconnaissance. As they did, the party moved forward and passed through Brigadier General James H. Lane's North Carolina Brigade. From north to south, their alignment was the 28th Regiment, then 18th North Carolina on the north side of the road, the 37th and the 7th to the south. The 33rd North Carolina was slightly ahead, posted as skirmishers. Warmed of Union cavalry operating in the vicinity and unaware that Jackson or, for that matter, their division commander A.P. Hill were in front of their line, Jackson's party looked and sounded like cavalry. And so upon seeing forms moving in the smoky twilight, a shot was fired. That discharge spawned a volley from the 7th North Carolina on the south side of the road. Then the fire, like thunder, rolled northward. Lieutenant Joseph Morrison of Jackson's staff raced westward, back toward the 18th North Carolina, and shouted, You are firing into your own men. Cease firing. Major John Berry of the 18th North Carolina suspected deception and shouted to his men, Who gave that order? It's a lie. Pour it into them. His response, though understandable given the circumstances, haunted Barry for the rest of his life. Only some 25 yards away, the Confederate volley from the 18th North Carolina struck down 10 of 19 men and 12 horses. Though Jackson himself was the farthest from Lane's brigade, three 69 caliber bullets found him. One splintered bone and tendons three inches below the left shoulder before exiting. Another entered the left forearm an inch below the elbow and also exited just above the wrist. A third passed through his right palm, broke two fingers, and lodged against the skin on the back of his hand. It was a dazed and wounded Jackson, still astride his horse, who said in bewilderment, All my wounds are by my own men. Helped from his horse, he was laid at the base of a small tree. A.P. Hill dashed up, dismounted, and the tension between the two seemed a universe away. Hill said, 
General Jackson, I am sorry to see you wounded and hope you are not hurt much. While all tried to help incredibly, two Union soldiers emerged from a cluster of nearby bushes no more than five yards away. Their muskets were cocked, but two or three Confederates sprang forward and took the men quietly. Meanwhile, Jackson was placed on a litter. From that conveyance, he twice fell, both caused by the firefight that now ensued in the darkness between both lines. The second tumble particularly painful, for it was directly on his broken left arm. Two hours later, the wounded Corps commander was back at Wilderness Tavern, where his Corps field hospital was located. In some degree of shock and totally exhausted, it was just after 2 a.m. of May the 3rd when his 27-year-old surgeon, Dr. McGuire, began the surgical procedure to amputate his left arm. A piece of cloth was fashioned into the shape of a cup. A half ounce of chloroform was poured. Told to breathe deeply, the cloth was held two inches from the general's nose and mouth. He inhaled once, twice, and a third time. Enough for the sweet, fruity flavor to engulf his senses. His pain eased, and Jackson repeated softly, What an infinite blessing! Blessing. Blessing. The procedure was done by 3 a.m., and McGuire pronounced it successful. Lee learned of the shooting and wounding about six hours later. Though Jackson's flank attack had knocked Hooker's army back on its heels, Lee still had much to do, for his wings were divided. Indeed, the fight at Chancellorsville raged on for three more days before a sapped and crestfallen Joseph Hooker decided to retreat to the north bank of the Rappahannock River. However, while the battle raged, Lee wanted his lieutenant at a safe place. On May the 4th, Jackson was conveyed some 27 miles to Thomas C. Chandler's office at Guinea Station, alongside the Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac Railroad line. During the journey, Dr. McGuire reported that Jackson's vital signs were good. That continued until around 1 a.m. on Thursday, May the 7th, when the wounded general awoke with fever, nausea, and intense pain on his left side, the side on which he had been dropped. With each breath, piercing pain. McGuire treated him with all that could be done for one suffering from a pneumonia. Drawing blood from Jackson's chest, mustard plasters, wrapping him in blankets, regular doses of laudanum, a mixture of opium and whiskey. Jackson's chaplain general, Beverly Tucker Lacey, dropped by Lee's tent before leaving to visit Jackson. Lee asked if he would take a message. Give General Jackson my affectionate regard and say to him, He has lost his left arm, but I my right. Tell him to get well and come back to me as soon as he can. Jackson's wife, Anna, arrived at Guinea Station around noon. She steeled herself, but the sight of him broke her heart. He stirred to greet her, but the strength was simply not there. I am very glad to see you looking so bright. Then he slipped back into unconsciousness. He later reawakened and remarked when seeing her so sad, 
my darling, you must cheer up and not wear a long face. I love cheerfulness and brightness in a sick room. From that point on, she did as he asked. When she left the room, then the tears would flow. The wounded warrior rallied a bit on the 8th, but on Saturday the 9th he took a turn for the worse. On Sunday the 10th of May, Dr. McGuire told Anna he would not survive the day. She entered the room where he lay about 11 a.m. She told her husband that before the sun set, he would join the Heavenly Father in paradise. Yet he was not willing to surrender. Oh no, you are frightened, my child. Death is not so near. I may yet get well. And with that, Anna buried her head in the bed coverings and sobbed. Jackson called for McGuire. Doctor, Anna informs me that you have told her I am to die today. Is it so? The doctor gently said, yes, indeed, it was so. Jackson's eyes stared blankly at Dr. McGuire, then wandered to the ceiling. The period of painful silence was broken when he said, very good, very good, it is all right. His daughter, Julia, was brought into the room, and the general's face brightened. He cooed, little darling, sweet one, and purred, little comforter. Then came deep sleep. When he awoke, a member of his staff, Major Sandy Pendleton, stood by his bed. He could barely control his emotions. To his comment that the whole army is praying for you, Jackson replied, Thank God. They are very kind. There was silence except for across the room, the ticking of the clock on the mantelpiece. Then he offered, It is the Lord's day. Told that it was, he added, My wish is fulfilled. I have always desired to die on Sunday. Pendleton left the room in tears, his whole body shaking with sobs. In fact, everyone in the room was crying. The general servant, Jim Lewis, was inconsolable. Anna cried softly. McGuire tried to ease Jackson's final hours with brandy mixed with water, but Jackson refused to take it. Then, as Professor Robertson wrote so poignantly in his classic work, Stonewall Jackson, the general slipped into a coma, the ticking of the clock seemingly growing louder, and as it did, its cadence may have, in some way, escorted Jackson to battlefields from the past. Borrowing from Robertson's beautiful prose, Jackson was at Chancellorsville again and audibly to all those in the room ordered, push up the columns, hasten the columns. Pendleton, you take charge of that. Where's Pendleton? Tell him to push up the columns. Then his life's journey began in reverse. Antietam, second Manassas, battle in the valley, fame at Manassas, ten happy years at VMI, his friends in Lexington, Anna, Ellie, war in Mexico, his days at West Point, the lonely, painful years of his youth. And then his time travel ceased. He was back at Jackson's Mill, the place of his youth. And there he was a little boy, tired, withdrawn, alone. He wanted to find refuge, and he knew where. The stand of white poplars and sugar maples on the other side of the West Fork River. And so 
it would be that at 3.15 on Sunday, May the 10th, 1863, Thomas Jonathan Jackson, Stonewall, clearly said, let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. And then Tom Jackson went home. With his death, the South was paralyzed, crushed. Robert E. Lee wept openly. In the North, one Massachusetts soldier probably summed their general feeling when he said, We shall fear him no more. His body was brought back to Richmond and placed in the governor's mansion on Capitol Square. The next day, his casket was placed in front of the speaker's chair in the Confederate House of Representatives. An estimated 20,000 filed by. Funeral services in Richmond complete. At 8 a.m., the casket, his family and friends made their way to the Virginia Central Railroad Depot and began their journey to Gordonsville. There, the cars were shifted onto the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, and the leg to Lexington, Virginia began. The next day, the 14th, the final stage of the journey. The body and funeral party boarded the canal boat Marshall. Upon arrival in Lexington, Jackson was taken to his beloved VMI, where his body was to lie in state that night in his old classroom. The funeral in Lexington was Friday, May the 15th. Then he was laid to rest in then Presbyterian Cemetery. Laid to rest beside his first daughter and not far from Ellie and his stillborn son. A stately pine tree shaded his grave. Over the years, many came to pay their respects. They still come to the center of the cemetery where he now rests. When Stonewall Jackson died, like a Shakespearean character at the height of his greatest tactical victory, one of the greatest partnerships in military history came to an end. Perhaps one Lexington girl summed up what so many thought at that time when she remarked, It was the first time it had dawned on us that God would let us be defeated. Of course, Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia made changes and moved on. They had to. But without him, the next great battle that Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia found itself in was in southern Pennsylvania on the first three days of July at a little town named Gettysburg. Anna, his wife, became the widow of the Confederacy. Extremely active in the United Daughters of the Confederacy, she became an honorary life member. Her travel included the visits to five presidents. She died March 24, 1915 in Charlotte, North Carolina at the age of 83. Pneumonia took her, the same malady that claimed her husband. The infant Julia suffered through a number of illnesses in her youth. Their combination left her quite frail as an adult. At 22, she married William E. Christian in Richmond. They had two children, Thomas Jonathan Jackson Christian, who lived from 1888 to 1952, and Julia Jackson Christian, who lived from 1887 to 1991. She passed at the Presbyterian home in High Point, North Carolina, at the age of 104. Sadly, 
Tragically, her mother, Jackson's daughter, Julia, died of typhoid fever. She was only 26. When Thomas Jonathan Jackson crossed over the river and rested in the shade of the trees, he was only 39 years of age. Though on this earth for a relatively short time, his career and legacy lives on. So prominently that from Civil War and military history buffs to professionals, his legacy spawns a timeless, oft-repeated rhetorical and historical question. What if? What if late in the day of July the 1st, 1863? What if at Gettysburg? What if Stonewall had been at the foot of Cemetery Hill? What if? Very sincere thanks to Tom Bowers, who recently stepped forward and became our first patron. You too can join the ranks of our valued and appreciated podcast supporters by clicking on the website tab that reads, Become a Patron. Thank you. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.